The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Good morning. I want to take this opportunity to do a couple of things before we get into the word. One is to, uh, there's some tragic events in Las Vegas this week, and I think it's, it, we should pray for that first, and then I'll pray for the sermon. But Heavenly Father, we don't know your ways or why you do things, but we know the events of Las Vegas were tragic and, and terrible, and, and for a lot of people, they are just absolutely devastating. We ask that, Lord, we don't know why you do things, but we ask that you use them. We know you use them for your good. We ask that. The, uh, that the people of Las Vegas look to you, look for contentment in, in, in your word, and uh, if they don't know you, they bring, it to, bring, you, uh, bring them to you, Lord, and use this as an event that will uh, strengthen their love for you and strengthen your kingdom. And Lord, with regard to this, this sermon today, the song said, your name, your name is victory, all praise will rise to our king. I hope that's what happens today out of my message, that it, the message will be praised to you and rise to you, Lord, and be strengthen this, strengthen this congregation. I ask that, Lord, uh, you give me the words in this, in this sermon to, to speak the truth, speak your word, and that the, everybody's ears will be open to hear that message and that the messenger will not get in the way of those words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, today we're going to move into the uh, first 14 verses of 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's... Uh, really expands on the message that Justin gave last week. Uh, and uh, if you were here, you, you know that message. If you weren't here, I think, I think this is where Justin would say probably, shame on you. <laughs> well, that's what he told me to say anyway. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> anyway, Justin taught us that last week that we should, we should take care in our knowledge and that liberty does not cause the, our weaker brother to uh, fall into sin. In chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians uh, the first 14 verses extends that topic to, uh, to the broader church and to believers, non-believers, the uh, corporate body of the church. Paul teaches us that the church uh, should take care on the application of our rights and entitlements so that they do not hinder what the mission of the church is or delivery of the gospel. It's very possible many times when we assert our rights and entitlements that they get in the way of what's happening at the church and gets away of the gospel message. So he talks about that uh, broadly in his, in, his, uh, in his message in chapter 9. But I couldn't help, I spent a lot of time this week thinking about this, and one word kept coming back into my mind constantly, and it's not a good word, honestly, uh, with regard to Christian walk. And it has to do with, with the, uh, the delivery of the gospel and letting entitlements get in our way. That word, unfortunately, I'm going to say it, is hypocrite. It's a... Uh, why, why, is that, why, is, why is that word come to my mind? And it's primarily because we forget that with, with entitlement and rights come obligation, oblig, obligations and responsibilities. Here's what I, what I mean by that. If we as Christians claim Christ as our Savior, and if we, if we proclaim and profess our faith in the gospel, then we ultimately promise, we're promised eternal life with our Savior a new body, how great is that when you have Parkinson's disease, I'm telling you. <laughs> Eternal with our a, a, a new body and free of pain and what Be Thou My Vision just said, an overflowing new life of joy. How good is that? But although 
God gives us that, these gifts purely out of his mercy and grace, there still is obligations for us. There's expectations that we will show our love and appreciation for his son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross, and uh, we're, that we're committed to more and more model his life as best we can. So given that, there's, given that that's what we're called to, we still have an issue. We have to live life on this earth, and we have to commit to or follow through with those obligations and responsibilities. The fact is that I don't think they're disputed by Christians or non-Christians. We get uh, time and again, we encounter situations where you have to act. The Holy Spirit calls us to act, but we fail to act. It is uh, much easier for us to rationalize why not to act than to act. And it's, uh, rationalization is many times seems like nearly automatic for us. We walk down the street and we see somebody with a problem. Do we drive by or do we, we help? Uh, so the reason that is, I think, is it's much more difficult to act because usually it requires us to give up something, usually something precious, something usually our, some, some of our rights, our time, our money. And uh, unfortunately, we think that it takes too much, too much time, too much sacrifice, and we don't do things. Well, turn this around, and what would have happened if Christ wouldn't have, God wouldn't have put Christ on the cross for us? He wouldn't have made that sacrifice for us. Where would we be today? And uh, how precious is that gospel message to us that, that Christ made that sacrifice? But well, we're called to follow that, that role, that walk of Christ. Uh, it's, I look back, I'm, I'm a little older than a lot of you, a lot of you are my age too, but I'm a little older than most in this audience. That I see as generation follows generation, it seems that we are, we are falling further and further away from the word of God. And that much as it is caused by the fact that we, like the Corinthians, have not followed in the footsteps of Christ, taking up the cross for him. And maybe even worse than that, our culture sometimes seems more important than the gospel message. This causes us to seek cultural solutions instead of scriptural solutions. Many times this means us letting government or institutions step in where we should be stepping in. I can't, I have to say I'm really proud of seeing our church step into the Houston, the Houston uh, flood, flood issue, and that's what we as church people should be doing, as Christ commands us to do, to step in and to step into causes like that and not be so reliant on our government institutions to do that. When this occurs, when, when we let our institutions step in and we don't step in as Christians, we tend to look hypocritical. We should instead, uh, what, I, what I say is, we should lean into Christ, step back from our cultural rights, and become his hands and feet and heart to the world. We would, if we would step in and do that, we wouldn't, be, wouldn't appear that way. So let's move on to the text and, and see how I get to that I kind of gave you the, the end before the beginning, but uh, let me step back into the text now, and you'll see how Paul addresses the issue of how Corinthians were inappropriately swayed by their culture also. Paul begins chapter 9, and what I... I don't know if this is right or not, but I look at it, it's kind of like an emotional snit, if that's a word. <laughs> why is this? Why is this? Well, I think for first you have to understand the context and the circumstances of uh, Paul's writing and, and the time he was writing. The Corinthian people were... Uh, relatively rich, relatively educated, living in a pretty decadent society. So if you were a Corinthian, you probably weren't living next to the Disney store. You're probably living uh, more likely next door to a, a local bar, adult bookstore, something that wasn't so appropriate. Uh, this is the world that, they, that, they, that they, the Corinthian church had just come out of. So they were coming out of this world of, of, of decadence into the world of spirituality and Christ. And so, in addition, 
Paul was facing a battle of people who were not used to uh, directing the public discussion, but directing it, not, being, not used to being directed by public discussion, but directing public discussion. Uh, the, in Corinth, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Corinth, but there was a time of Greek philosophers and a lot of people would come through Corinth and, and, and make oratory. And basically, uh, oratory was paid for by the, by the more wealthy people, the more educated people, to have a message, uh, message told to the Corinthian people to kind of guide them in a, in a way that they wanted to. It was uh, kind of like what I call the, the rubber chicken circuit here, where our politicians retire and they speak all over where, whether it's Bill Clinton here or George Bush here. They're all trying to, they're all paid to, to profess a message. And uh, considering the cultural background of what can be seen from Paul's discussion back in chapter 4 and here in, in chapter 9, Paul's instruct, Paul is instructing us to limit the experience of one's rights in foreign, and I think it's a foreign concept because of the nature of the culture there, the decadent culture, the culture that's led by certain people in, in speeches. And uh, so given all the world influence and their unfamiliarity with the structure and culture background of Jewish law and teaching, it's really quite natural for them to question and wonder why, wonder about Paul's apostleship. It wasn't, it wasn't the message that they were hearing from their, their people who were speaking in the public, public squares and the temples. It wasn't the message that, uh, that necessarily they wanted to hear because they had this entitled attitude. So the question that they brought up was Paul's in, in reason in the first three or four verses in, where I'm getting to in the first three or four is Paul's defense of his apostleship. It's not, unused, not any wonder to me why they were asking, uh, why doesn't Paul get paid? We pay our speakers to speak. Why doesn't Paul, uh, why doesn't Paul behave like a, a normal, normal public speaker? Why isn't, he, uh, why isn't Paul like, more like us? So grumbling was not new to Paul either. In chapters 4, Three and four and six of First Corinthians, uh, he talks about says. So for me, it is not a minor matter that I am judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. So Paul's aware that there's there's some disunity going on in the church, and that people are judging him. And so he takes his time. And I think it's really important that he takes his time to defend himself, and that's what he does, and defend, not defend himself, but defend, the, defend Christ and defend the apostleship that, is, that he is uh, so strongly uh, committed to in, in Corinth. So what we have at this time is a non-Christ-centered perspective. Discord in the church was the situation. Because of this environment, the problem was serious, and the examination of, apost of Paul's apostleship called for a, a really strong defense. And I think Paul's veracity was being questioned this time. His capability and even his authority were all under fire. And if he had let that gone, even the gospel would have been under fire in Corinth. It just was not, it was not a place that uh, was, was really a positive place for the message of Christ at that time. So here, this is why we, Paul has such a strong defense, I believe, in verses 1 through 3. And Paul begins verses 1 through 3. We finally got there. <laughs> am, I, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would, who would uh, examine me. So that's, there's, there's a series of rhetorical questions that are very strong because of the way they've been asked. The first one saying, am I not free? 
And what were the Corinthians asking here? I'd, I'd, I'd propose that here the, the Corinthians were asking, Paul, why are you doing what you're doing? And Paul's coming back to he's saying, am I not free? He appears to be defending his ministry method and not in such a subtle way. Uh, it, it, it's not a subtle way in that he, he's letting the church know he is not enslaved to their worldly, their worldly ways and worldly desires. Christ's death on the cross has freed him from those worldly desires and made him a servant of God's word and God's people. Paul's preaching and his lifestyle attack the status quo. He's asking the Corinthians to give up their right for the good of the gospel, for the good of the gospel, versus to engage their rights and attempt, and attempt to change the message. And effectively, that's by trying to criticize Paul and, and attack Paul. That's what they were effectively trying to do. They were trying to change the gospel message. They were trying to change it back to the Corinthian message. So Paul clarifies his freedom, and it's not and actually it's further down in chapter nine, but he clarifies his, his his what he views as freedom in verses 19 and 23 when he states, "For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." So to Paul, freedom is not what the Corinthians are looking for. Freedom in outside the gospel, but freedom is in sharing the gospel to the Corinthian unbeliever and being obedient to Christ's message. Paul's next question, am I not an apostle? What's happening here? Well, here it appears that the Corinthians have directly attacked Paul's authority and his leadership of the church. Why else would he ask, am I not an apostle? And Paul, again, attacks his face on by asking some rhetorical questions. And uh, the Corinthian church the Corinthian church, basically, or the Corinthian people, are saying, "You do not, do not measure, you do not measure up to our standards or expectations for a leader of our church." They've probably felt that they were entitled to a better pastor, one of these public-type speakers that speaks in the temple that could, uh, that would have a better look, a better feel, and a better message. But I just can't imagine uh, how our pride and anger. Pride creates anger at not having what we want and binds us to our and blinds us to our blessings. That was really what was happening in Corinth. Their efforts, the Corinthians' efforts to get what they think they deserve, started with grumbling and dissent, escalated accusations, and and maybe even an attempt to oust Paul. So Paul continues his defense and shooting. He shoots off another volley of rhetorical questions, and uh, and I think the answers are obviously yes to these, and I don't think they can be denied, but. Basically, here are the questions. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not, your work, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So what's Paul saying here? Have I not seen the Jesus? Well, Paul's addressing, they're, they're obviously questioning Paul's claim that he really saw Jesus on the road to Damascus and uh, therefore not, not, not qualified to be an apostle. Well, the Bible says that, that he did, and Paul answers this, answers this that he, he did see them, but he answers it also rhetorically and alludes to how Jesus physically appeared to him. And even more importantly, he, he also implies in his answer that, that uh, God commissioned him to be a, an apostle. And you can see this in chapter 1 and in chapter 15. Or, sorry, yeah, chapter 1 and chapter 15, chapter 15 of Galatians and chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians that it was God who commissioned Paul to minister. And Paul lets them know that clearly in his, in his uh, discussion in 1 Corinthians 9. In, in, uh, in the first verse of 
Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul, Paul states that Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is, this is God's inerrant word, by the will of God. Clearly, Paul was called by God. In Galatians, Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So again, God knew he was going to call Paul. He called Paul to preach to the Gentiles. That is the Corinthians also. And, and the word says that Paul was commissioned by God. And his, Paul makes it really clear in, 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 verses, in verses 2 that he is God's, God's apostle. It seems clear to me, and it seems clear to me, Paul was commissioned directly by God to do God's work, not to meet the Corinthians' entitled expectations. And I think that's where we have the big gap here in Paul's strong defense. Paul next answers, asks and answers, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? And this is where I think the Corinthians are really blinded, actually. If, others, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship. And uh, it appears that somebody is accusing Paul of even maybe denying his pivotal role in bringing them to the Lord in Corinth. But they know the Lord. Their relationship exists with the Lord. How could they not how could they deny Paul's role in that? Paul created the Paul through the through the will of God cre- created that Corinthian church for them. And they they it's just hard hard to believe that when they if they really had a relationship with God that they would see Paul not as an apostle. He ends his defense with a metaphor of of, of the royal seal. He typically uh, during this time ter- typically during this time emperors and kings had a, uh, a signet ring that they used to uh, to stamp things that authenticated and validated their uh, their documents that they really was the king signing it. And uh, here Paul unequivocally informs the Corinthians that they are the seal of their the authentication of his work as an apostle. The fact that they have a relationship with the Lord which did not previously exist is God's seal of Paul's work. So what gives, the right, what gives the Corinthians the right to examine or question Paul? Honestly, nothing. But probably it's their immaturity in, in, in their faith, their sense of entitlement, and cultural influence. I'm, I, that would be my, my suspicion. There are similar conditions that we... These are similar conditions that we as believers all find in our lives and hearts. Immaturity can be manifested in, in prideful attitudes. We clearly see it in Corinth, which can uh, lead to behavior like we saw, unjustly uh, examining Paul and forcing Paul to defend himself. Entitlement, especially for an immature believer, can be much worse, I think, in that it represents an attitude that God owes us something. God owes the Corinthians nothing, yet the Corinthians, I think, owed God everything, especially the believers believers in Corinth, Corinth, anyway. Yet God saved them for themselves from themselves by putting his son Jesus Christ on the cross to save them from their own depraved ways and, uh, and, they had, and, and gave them hope. It is only through God's grace and mercy that they had any hope. Yet the Corinthians still felt they had the right and entitlement to create dissension and trouble in the church because Paul and Jesus were encroaching on their lives. Unbelievable. Even though they had been called to be unified, to love their brothers in Christ and to spread the gospel, they apparently chose the road to abuse their rights and to hinder their spreading of the gospel. Here Paul simply ends his defense with an unstated assumption and, and, uh, and 
basically that his apostleship and his work for the Lord is undeniable. Each of Paul's questions demands an emphatic yes, and Paul leaves it at that. In fact, he, moves, he, he actually turns the, the, uh, the questioning 180 degrees around. Paul turns the debate of rights and entitlements on its head now and basically says he's done answering the church's questions. What about the rights of a proper church leader? What about the rights of an apostle? So Paul, Paul once says, if you want to talk about something, let's talk about the legitimate rights and entitlements. Then let, and let's talk about what's truly deserved by an apostle. And he does this in verses 4 through 7, where he writes, Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as to the uh, other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas, Cephas being Peter? Uh, for those of you who do not know... Oh, or is, it only the Bar- or, or, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So he's basically referring to, starting to refer to his rights, and we, should be, we have the right to be compensated. So although some argue that, uh, that religious freedom, in the first argument about, do I have the right for food and drink? Some argue that that still relates to chapter 8. Uh, I think most think it clearly relates to just the the right for the the apostle to have sustenance provided by the by the church, and uh, I think Paul here is simply saying that that an apostle has the right to have that sustenance supported by the church. Verse five is a little more vexing to me, and that is probably driven by again by the Corinthian attack on the legitimacy of his apostleship. It basically says, Paul, why aren't you married? And Peter's married. Why aren't you married? And so they start questioning him again. And Paul basically is already asked and answered that question if you, in chapter 7. Paul's, Paul told us in chapter 7 that given the distress in, in Corinth at this time, he believed it was better not to be married to do the work of the gospel. And for, for many reasons, but primarily he viewed many things being a distraction to his work in professing the gospel in, in a time of, of distress and trials in Corinth. And one of those was being married Anyway, if you think about it, why wouldn't Paul have the right not to be married? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't get, I really don't get it. Uh, next, Paul makes the point, verses six and seven, that Apostle has the right to his support from the Corinth church, but he also has reasons he has the right to provide his own support. So, the big question during that time was why wasn't Paul being paid? Everybody, it's, it's a, that's a, uh, a reasonable, reasonable. A uh, person who works in the temple who is a great order would be paid. Paul, you must not be so good because you aren't accepting any money. And uh, Paul turns it around and says, what gives you the right basically to criticize me because I do not meet your worldly expectations to be compensated? Paul here focuses on the Corinthian way from... Corinthian focuses... Sorry. Paul here focuses the Corinthians away from the idea that he can be influenced by money at the expense of the gospel in his service to Jesus. Paul clearly sees taking money as an obstacle for some of the Corinthian church and thus to his ministry of spreading the gospel. Verse 7, Paul takes a more practical defense of why the apostles should be supported by the fruit. He looks to society and he says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Or simply said, in society, the soldier is paid by the one he serves and protects. The vinekeeper is paid by the fruits he grows. The, uh, the shepherd is paid for the milk that he sells from his flock. 
that he nurtures and cares for. The apostle, like everyone else, according to Paul, should expect to be sustained because he labors on behalf of the church. Payment is only natural, Paul says, because, uh, because if you labor for the church, shouldn't you be paid by the church? And uh, Paul, does not leave, Paul doesn't leave his, his argument of compensation and rights for, for apostles with that. He then turns to the scripture and uh, turns to the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 25.4. And uh, he says in, in, in verses 8 through 10, do I say these things on human authority? He's referring back to his arguments before, which are based on human authority. Now he's going to scripture. And uh, does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses. And this is, this is 25.4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it, trends, when it, tre- when it tre- treads out the grain. That's it. That's what it says. And then he goes on to say, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and, and the thresher shall thresh in the hope of sharing in the crop. Again, Paul asks, asks the rhetorical question from, uh, from Deuteronomy to... Sh- Paul asks this rhetorical question from Deuteronomy to show the inhumane man can, without God directing his life, be so inhumane. Just imagine a starving oxen, muzzled, treading around a threshing mill and, and not being able to eat. It's... it's, it's, it's uh, it's a picture that you can see man in Corinth doing and being taken to, uh, to the extreme. You can see why Paul is calling, if, if an oxen is to be, if an oxen, it, God's calling for an oxen to be unmuzzled and be fed, surely you would call for God's servants to be fed by the people who are benefiting from that also. So the, the caretakers of the oxen, the people that are, that are making money from the oxen, absolutely are called by God to undo that and Paul takes it to the next step is that we're working for God we're, we're, we're feeding people just like the, the, uh, the agricultural worker with the oxen and we surely should be fed by the, uh, by the church who we're feeding Again, I'd like to look at the end of the verse also because I think there's something there that's really significant too. Look again at the end of verse 10. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in the hope of sharing in the crop. What, what is the crop that we're talking about in our crop when we're, when we're sowing and reaping God's word? It's ultimately heaven. And so they're, they're, they're going to share in the hope of the crop. We're going to sow seeds and share in the hope of being in heaven and being with God and having joy in eternal life. Uh, what, a, what a picture that I think is setting out there for all of us, uh, Paul's painting here. In verses 11 and 12, Paul continues his rationale for financial support, but this is, this, this is the verse in, in, in 1 Corinthians 9 that I think we should all be focused on. Uh, Paul finally gets to the point why, why he, he, he rejects money. So Paul goes, puts all this, all this justification of why he thinks apostles should be paid, and he says, but yet... I don't take your money. And basically what Paul says in, in verse 12, 11 and 12, if others share their rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Let me say again, nevertheless, we, being he and Barnabas, have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Did you catch that? We endure anything. And you can translate that to we endure everything. That is a powerful statement. 
How many of us can honestly say that we endure everything for the, for the spreading of the gospel of Christ? It's, a, uh, it's, it's very convicting. I don't, for me, it is, anyway. I'm sure it is for all of you, too. Uh, before, I go, before I go any deeper into verse 12, there's 13 or 14. I'd like to put that 12 at the end, so let me quickly run through 13 or 14, and then I'll come back to 12. And it's 13 or 14, or do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? and those who serve the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. If we have sown spiritual things among you, it is, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Well, what about spiritual services? If you receive the word of God, are you not obligated to return, the, return God's love to his, to his servants? I think we as a, as a church have an obligation to support the church. And I think that's here what Paul is calling, calling us to based on workers doing God's work and rightfully rightly growing us and feeding us and us feeding them back. Paul covers, a, Paul's covers, Paul covers just a lot of terrain in, in, in chapter 9, but there's one clear message out of all this, and it comes back to that message of chapter 12, or verse 12, that we should take home with us today. And it's a message that, that Paul modeled while leading the church at Corinth, but he modeled wherever else the Holy Spirit led him. And for us, mere human disciples of Jesus it is a message that is difficult to fulfill. But when you hear it, you, you're totally convicted by it. And in verse 12, we're going to go back right now to what, what, what I'm talking about. And that is what he said there. And it, it basically says, nevertheless, we have made use of this right. Well, we have not made use of this right. And, well, why didn't they? And it's what he says. Rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ, we have forgone any support from you. We will provide our own support. The last half of this verse, I think, says it all for this for chapter or for chapter nine. As Christians, we too should ensure that the gospel message goes out unfettered to the untouched, the unsaved world. To do so, though, we 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 too might be called upon to endure anything. That's pretty tough, pretty tough language, I think. We, we too may have to endure anything. We may have to give up more than, more, than we are, more, than we, more than we'd like. I'll put it that way. Not maybe more than we, we're able to, but more than we'd like. Christ calls us in many, many places to give up, give sacrificially. And uh, this is what Paul's talking about now. To, to spread the word, we should give up our rights and entitlements to make that happen. And so... Uh, just as importantly as it is to Paul not to be a roadblock to the spreading of the gospel, Christ is calling us not to be a roadblock to the preaching of the word or hinder it spread to all the world. So this is not just Paul's call, this is Christ's call also. Paul did not just call us to give up our rights, he modeled it. And that's what he's calling us to do, honestly. He modeled the sacrificial life and, modeled, and modeling for us and calling us to give up our rights until Jesus returns to, to ensure the gospel is preached everywhere to ensure that people who, who don't know the gospel have that opportunity to hear the gospel. In Corinth, Paul gave up many of his rights to avoid creating an obstacle to spreading, to spreading the gospel to those less mature in the church and for the sake of those unbelievers outside, outside the church. Paul gave up his right to sustenance and support. Paul gave this up so that the Corinthians would know that his message was in no way tainted or influenced by Corinthian money a practice that was common in use with, with, in that day with traveling orders. He knew if he accepted money for his spiritual service that this would not only taint the gospel for the unbeliever, but that it would also further tempt for those who were trying to wield their influence. 
So the same is true with Paul's choice to have a wife. I said this earlier. Paul knew that, that he was on mission, and journeys with a wife would distract him from, from him accomplishing his gospel teaching. So Paul gave that, gave that right. I won't say he gave it away, but he did not take that right. And uh, again, focused on the pre- preaching of the message in, in a way that would be totally undistracted. Paul did not... Another point that I think I want to make that in the first part of it, Paul was strong, such a strong defender of, of his God, apostleship. There was a reason. Although Paul calls us to give up our, our rights and entitlements for the spread of the gospel, he doesn't say give up all our rights. He, he defends his rights when it's, in, when it's constructive to spreading the gospel. He defended his right as an apostle. His, he had the responsibility to serve the mission and spread the kingdom. And to do that, he had to defend his apostleship. So all of God's people, including apostles of yesterday, Paul, Peter, the clergy, the, the, the pastoral staff of today, and the rest of us saints, are called to give up whatever is necessary to finish the work of the spreading of the gospel. Paul modeled this behavior to the Corinthians, and here in his first epistle, he is calling us to that action also, I think. So where do we stand on this issue? Are we ready to give up our rights and entitlement to further the kingdom of God? and not to be a hindrance to the spread of the gospel? That's a tough one, isn't it? It's really, really, really have to look at your life and examine it. Before I go into the questions of what are you giving up or defending, I want to take a moment to address what Paul, I think, is not saying. And this, is, this, is, this isn't written by Paul, so this is my, my interpretation, but I think it's important that we address what Paul is not saying, because you can take the give up your rights very far-fetched and, and come up with some crazy crazy, crazy things that you, you should be giving up. But I don't think Paul is saying you should, you, should, you should use this call to avoid your biblical responsibilities, for sure. Don't use Paul's call to avoid family members that are having problems. Don't, don't avoid the call to avoid your children and doing your proper parenting. Don't avoid the call to, uh, to avoid your Christian brothers who need help, need assistance. Don't... Uh, it doesn't say... It says give sacrificially, but it doesn't say give beyond your personal capabilities or means. So what, what is sacrificial is a very personal thing, but it does say, I think Paul is saying, not saying to give, give, give in a way that would be unhealthy. And so what does this mean? What does, what does this mean for Paul? What does Paul mean when he says give up your rights so that you do become, so you do not become a hindrance? So what rights are we talking about giving up? I'm just, this is very basic for me. I'm not trying to, say, give up these huge rights. I think, basically, it's, it's more simpler than that. It's, give, up, give, give yourself up. Allow, your, allow yourself to be equipped by your pastor. Be a saint in the sense of Ephesians 4. The pastor is called to equip us all. Make yourself available to be equipped. Find that extra time in your schedule to uh, avail yourself to the ministry. Maybe it's Monday night football for us guys. Maybe it's uh, the night, guys' night out. Maybe it's a yoga class. There's things that we have in our lives. Maybe it's sleep, sleeping in on Saturday. There's things that we can take in our life and take those rights that we think are rights and eliminate them and, and use them for God's kingdom. Uh, could be such something as simple as, Justin, you'll like this, maybe it's as simple as uh, eliminating your daily Starbucks coffee so we can support the vision, the Stone Oak vision. <laughs> this isn't easy, by the way, because I'm, I'm the first one to... Uh, to uh, 
say uh, it's, it's a difficult, difficult task. And I can, I re I'll relate a real quick story that when we first came to Stone Oak, we were looking for a church. We've been here two years now in San Antonio, and we we're looking for a church. And the first thing we said, what do we want in church? We want good pastor, great, great, uh, great uh, theology, great programs, great music, great, great, great. And not one of those was spread of the gospel, was it? We come to Stone Oak, and we, we, we come to Stone Oak, and we, we look, at, look at the web and say, here's Stone Oak, and we look at it, and the first comment was, church plant. None of, none of the things we want. <laughs> Not going there. <laughs> and, uh, but we're wrong. We're, again, we're looking at what we wanted, not what God wanted. God was going to spread the gospel. And after four or five visits to Stone Oak, we knew the heart was here. The, the preaching was here. The heart was here to spread the gospel. And Justin gave a, gave a sermon that, that I think it was the fourth or fifth time we're here that the church is not about you. It's about what you can do for the church. And that's what it's all about. It's about us working for the church and working for God to spread the gospel. And that's what we missed. It took us, we're slow. It took us five times. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Really slow, but uh, no, matter, no matter what your story, whether it's my story or the, the Holy Spirit can and will direct your time and, re, and resources to further the gospel of Christ. And so as you go out in the world today, remember that your resources are gifts from the Lord and you're called to give up those resources for the sake of the gospel message. So... Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you for allowing me this time to preach your word. I hope that I did it justice. Uh, it was the intent, and I, I just pray that it's one, a message that glorified you, Lord, and that we take this message and we take it seriously, that we look at, we look at our lives and we, and we take our entitlements and rights and look at them and see how we can use them not to hinder your kingdom, but to grow your kingdom. I think the, the, the song that Brandon played, my na Your Name is Victory, Victory, All Praise Will Rise to Christ Our King, is what it's all about. And, and that's what we need, to we need to be living our lives where we praise the Lord, we live our lives, so that praise will rise to the King.